Turn in your Bibles to John chapter number 20. If you're comforted by the fact that Jesus pleads on your behalf, say amen. amen. John chapter number 20, we're just going to do a brief review, so watch the screens quickly as we fly through these first several screens, just reviewing, bringing us up to speed to where we are now. I mentioned overall when we began this series, there's two main parts to this series to understand. First of all, in this first half that we're wrapping up today, we're making a case for theism, for basic belief in God. In the second half, after next weekend, after our guest speaker is here, we're going to be looking at making the case for Christianity. And the reason we start with theism is because we're really just starting with a basic argument for there is a God, and then going to saying, and the God that is revealed in the Bible is the Christian God of all reality. And so that's where we're going, and that's how we're building this case. And in this first half of the series, we've looked at several key truths. Number one, we made a case for truth. Can we handle the truth? What is truth? Can truth be known? Why does it matter that there is absolute truth? And, and uh, if you missed that uh, message, make sure to check that out on our podcast. And then uh, the next week, we looked at, we started a three-part series on the existence of God, and we looked at the cosmological argument. We looked at three main arguments for the existence of God. There's many others besides those, but we looked at three main arguments uh, and the first week we looked at the cosmological argument, meaning in the beginning, God, and how even science today is pointing to this reality that there was an absolute beginning to the universe. In the next week, we looked at the design argument or the teleological argument, and we argued that from the design that we see in nature and in the universe, clearly there is a designer behind it. Logic says that you can't have a poem without a poet a song without a songwriter, a painting without a painter. And so that's the teleological argument. Last week, we looked at the moral argument. And we looked at how the fact that we know that there is an ultimate sense of right and wrong points to a standard outside of ourselves. We mentioned this illustration. How do we know that Mother Teresa was any better morally than Hitler was unless we have some outside ruler or bar to measure them by? We're not saying that either one of them, we don't know what their ultimate heart condition was. But we're just saying from a moral perspective, a basic moral perspective, we can say with a certain degree of certainty that, uh, that Mother Teresa was better morally than Hitler was. And the point of that is, and we even use this illustration, how do we know which map of Scotland is more accurate, map A or map B? Well, it's because we have a real unchanging Scotland to compare those two maps to. And so we said, of course, map A. And so the point is, is that the moral argument says that if we're making moral value-based judgments, that implies that there is a moral standard outside of ourselves by which we intuitively know the difference between right and wrong. In fact, moral absolutes are undeniable. We show this most clearly by our reactions and not our actions. We talked last week about the absolute barbarism of partial birth abortion and how there's folks who stand on one side and say, oh, there's no, nothing morally wrong with drilling a hole in a baby's head and taking its brains out. But the moment you go to that person with a drill in your hand towards their head and try to drill a hole in their head, head what, what, what are they going to say? Stop! It's wrong. And so moral absolutes are undeniable because we show this most clearly by our reactions and not our actions. And so what we were saying last week is we're not saying that atheists can't be moral people. In fact, by the very efforts of them trying to be moral in some areas, they are showing that there's a moral standard outside of themselves. And we're not saying that they can't know the difference between right and wrong because Romans chapter 2 says that God has written the law on our hearts so that we are without excuse. And so what we're not saying is we're not saying that some atheists can't be moral or that they don't know morality. What we are saying is, is that unless you have a moral standard outside of yourself, then there's no sense in getting in any arguments about morality. Because unless you have a standard outside of yourself, you can't justify why anything is ultimately right or ultimately wrong. Atheists can theorize about how we know murder is wrong, but atheism provides no objective standard that establishes why murder is wrong. And why is murder wrong? Because we were created in the image of God. We are image-bearing creatures of God's creation. And human life 
has value, or it should. Unfortunately, we, we see that that's not the case today, and I'll mention that here and again in a moment. And so we agree with atheists. Listen, some atheists do live better moral lives than some believers. And it's sad that, that within Christianity, there, is, there are bad examples of people who have lived lives that have harmed many individuals. But again, why does that even matter to an atheist if there is no objective standard outside of them by which to say that that's right or wrong? You can't justify that. Some Christians who say they're church, or some people who say they're church people have poisoned the teachings of Christ. As we mentioned, uh, the abuse that has happened in churches over the decades and, and things that have happened in the name of Christianity uh, doesn't mean that Christianity itself is wrong. Just because a great truth, a great teaching can be abused doesn't mean that the teaching is not true. You see this in so many areas today. Um, and we allow the potential abuse of a teaching to scare us away from the truth of the reality of what is being taught. And so uh, I shared this cartoon with you. You know, we talked about moral dilemmas and how uh, the university loves to object and say there is no absolute truth. And here's the intellectual argument. And they present a moral dilemma. And they say that if you're stranded in a boat, you know, you're going to vote to see who you throw overboard so that the rest of you can survive. And of course, Fred, at the end of the boat, lost out to the dog. And what you see is you see a moral hierarchy that should be uh, understood should start with God, then people, then things. But unfortunately, that's been flipped today. It seems like things are the most important. An eagle's egg is more important than a baby, right? We flipped. Animals have more rights than people do today. And so morality has been flipped on its head. And no wonder, I mean, when you take God out of uh, society, no wonder you have the chaos that you have today. And so we just live in a world where they like to pretend that there's no moral absolutes, but the reality is there is a standard by which all of us know we're going to stand and be held accountable to. And so as we look at this moral argument, we wrapped that up last week. We were just uh, really uh, trying to formulate through these three main arguments, the cosmological, the teleological, and the moral, an understanding of who God is. Neither one, neither singular argument is the smoking gun proof for the existence of God. Like I mentioned, it's a circumstantial case. We weren't there to witness a forensic past event. And so we're taking these clues, these fingerprints, like a crime scene detective, and we're putting these pieces together and saying the weight of the evidence leads us to a reasonable conclusion that God exists. And so from these arguments, we can conclude that God, because of the cosmological argument, has always existed outside the universe. He's infinitely powerful. He's infinitely intelligent. He created the universe for a purpose. And he, is he, and he is an absolutely morally perfect being who is personal. And so those are the truths that we put together from these three arguments that we studied over the last several weeks. Now today, and for sake of time, we're not going to go too deeply into this, but from those three arguments, the cosmological, teleological, and moral, we can deduce that theism is where the evidence points us to, that there is a theist, there is a God who created this universe. Now, within theism, there are three major world religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Now, we all know that Christianity is the one true religion, the one true faith, but as we get into now the next half of our study, we're going to see why Christianity is the one true and why it's exclusive. In fact, these three religions can't all be true in theism. You know why? Because they all make exclusive truth claims. So not all three of these can be true. And so as we look at the law of excluded middle, the law of non-contradiction, and take the laws of logic that we looked at early in our series and put that together, we're going to see as we piece this case together that Christianity is true beyond a reasonable doubt. And so as we look today at this question, are miracles possible? Are miracles possible? As we think about the, uh, as we think about Christianity, as we look at theism and we say, okay, I have the pieces of evidence piled together beyond a reasonable doubt, I can know that there is a God. So out of the theistic religions, whether that's Judaism, Christianity, or Islam, one of these could be true, but only one because of the fact that each one of these makes its exclusive truth claims. If one of these is true, then we have to ask ourselves a question. What could God do 
to help us know which one is indeed true. And what he could do is he could give to us the witness of miraculous events. So with that said, look at your scriptures there. John chapter 20. As John is finishing up his gospel account of the life of Christ, he says this in verses 30 and 31 of John chapter 20. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So notice what John says. And many other signs truly did Jesus. So Jesus performed miracles, signs, and wonders. He affirmed and confirmed who he was, God in the flesh. And John recorded many of these miracles to point us to faith in Christ, that God is true, that Jesus Christ is the revelation of who God is. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I pray you bless us as we look into this topic and into this question, are miracles possible? And that you would help us, Father, as we seek to uh, make a transition today and even into next week with our special speaker coming in. Father, if we believe that you could speak all of this into existence by the very power of your word, then certainly you can create a universe in a matter of just moments. You're able to do that. And so, Father, I pray that you'd help us today to see the connection of this study and how it bridges over into next week and the weeks to follow as we make a case for Christianity now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. How many of you were with me even with a lot, lot, losing an hour of sleep so far? Okay. All right. Are miracles possible? What is a miracle? I don't know if you see the... Um, the uh, introduction that I wrote in today's message here for the worship guide. But you remember the uh, 1980 Olympic winter hockey, U.S. men's hockey team? What uh, probably goes down, I think Sports Illustrated in 1999 there, I have in the notes there, uh, they named the United States versus the Soviet Union men's Olympic hockey game as the top sporting moment in the 20th century. Now, I was just a little baby. Little, no, I don't even know if I was born yet. I was born March 28, 1980. So I must have missed that. I've seen the movie, though, with Kurt Russell and, and, and all that. So, so anyway, the point is the U.S. men's hockey team was made up of amateur college players, and they were going up against four out of five times over the last several years of Olympics where, where the Soviets were the powerhouse. And you had this group of amateur guys that were playing against the Soviets. And you know the story. They won four to three. And Al Michaels, the announcer, is known for saying, Do you believe in miracles? Yes! <laughs> I've heard him say that. Um, yeah, there you go. And, of course, the United States would go on to win the gold medal game against Finland. But what is a miracle? Was that a miracle? When Al Michaels said, do you believe in miracles? Yes. Was that a miracle uh, exactly? And that's what I want to define here. And, and there's several resources that you can go and consult on this. Uh, the one where, where this really gives clarity is in the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. But let's look at what is a miracle. Now, this isn't in your notes, but you might just want to snap a photo of that if you can read it. Oh, man, that's going to be hard to read. Sometimes these don't translate over to the screens as well. But just listen closely to what a miracle is. And you do have these, I think, yes, you, you do have these in your notes. So follow along with me. What is a miracle? We probably use this word miracle too loosely or too vaguely. We say a lot of things are a miracle when they really aren't. And what happens is, is then when we start talking about miracles in the Bible, we just, we just don't understand the uh, exact nature of that word. So, number one, there's, there's six categories of things that we would sometimes, if we're not careful, call a miracle. Number one, we would say an anomaly. So there in that first column that's yellow, anomaly. What is an anomaly? An anomaly is a freak of nature, physical, it's a natural event with a pattern, and an example of an anomaly would be the bumblebee. For years, scientists did not know how a bumblebee could actually fly. Now, some might say, ooh, that's a miracle. No, it's not a miracle, it's just an anomaly of nature. At, at one point, science did not know how the bumblebee flew with its large body but its little wings, and then they discovered uh, many years ago, this uh, basically essentially a power pack that was connected to the bumblebee, wherefore, there, therefore he could fly. 
And so there are anomalies within nature, and we're not saying that those things are miracles. And, and so sometimes the discussion gets brought up, well, you're just a god of the gaps, and you claim that everything's a miracle because science doesn't yet understand. No, we're, we're not saying that there's not some anomalies where we don't yet fully understand the nature of the universe as God has created it. All right? And so there are anomalies. Number two, then, there's magic. Magic. How many of you like a good magic show? Anybody like a good magic show? Yeah, those are fun. Magic. Uh, magic involves sleight of hand. It's done by a human, uh, but, it, but it looks unnatural, but it's actually man-controlled. An example would be a rabbit out of a hat. Pulling a rabbit out of a hat looks like a miracle, but it's not. We know. How many of you, you don't like the magic show, but you like the shows that come on that tell you about how the magicians did it, you know, magic secrets revealed. And isn't it funny how, and, and years ago, I used to be really big into magic when I was a youth pastor. I would go to all the public schools and have fun with the kids at lunch and do all kinds of crazy stuff. And they literally sometimes would think I was really spooky with some of the stuff I was doing until they went online, YouTube, and found out how I did it, Right. And, and it's funny how something looks so unbelievable and incredible, and then you find out the one little detail behind the scenes. You're like, oh, that's how he did it. So again, we're not saying that something that falls into that category is a miracle, although some magicians can do some pretty amazing things today when you look at it. Number three, another category is psychosomatic events, meaning mind over matter. <laughs> Mental requires... Uh, faith or the power of belief. This fails for some in sickness. So there's unfortunately, and this has bled over into Christianity today. There's this uh, there's this psychosomaticism that's entered into Christianity, and so mind over matter. And the mind is a very powerful thing. They've done studies on placebo pills and how people will take a placebo and they think that they're all better. It's amazing how you can take a pill that has nothing to do with your sickness and go back to the doctor and you're better, and yet the doctor then reveals to you you're taking a placebo. You know, um, th There's a story in the book uh, by uh, Norm Geisler where he says that he uh, was diagnosed with an allergy to flowers. And whenever he would get around flowers, he would sneeze constantly. And so he goes to this church, and he's getting ready to speak at about apologetics and he gets up near the uh, uh, the uh, stage and there's a whole bouquet of flowers and he starts to sneeze and and he tells the one, one of the head deacons he says hey you're gonna have to get these flowers out of here because I'm allergic and he looks at him and he says um Mr. Geisler uh those are plastic <laughs> from that moment on Mr. Geisler did away with his prescriptions that he was taking for his allergies because at that point he knew that it was all in his mind and he never took another bit of allergy medication. Isn't that funny? So psychosomatic, I mean, that is a very powerful area and there's still parts of the human brain that we don't even yet understand. It, it is probably the undiscovered country, even, even more so than the galaxies far out there is understanding our brains, but psychosomatic. And then number four, satanic. There, is, there are things that are done by, uh, by the devil and his, his angels and, and his demons that, that, are, that look like a miracle. And we have to be very careful because the Bible says that Satan can appear as an angel of light. And so satanic, this involves false signs, demonic power, evil, falsehood, the occult, imitation, demonic influence. And so there are things that can happen that look completely miraculous, but they're not. They're just the devil imitating God. In fact, um, the devil can only mimic God's power. He cannot derive his own. He can only mimic. He can only imitate. In fact, if you remember the story in the book of Exodus with uh, Pharaoh and his satanic magicians, they could actually imitate some of the miracles that Moses was doing until when? Until the power of life became involved. And so certainly the devil has supernormal power, or yeah, supernormal, but he doesn't have supernatural power. That's something that only God possesses. And then there's another category, and this is, I think, where we most struggle between the two final columns. And that is this next one, providence. So go ahead and write that down in your notes, providence. So we have anomalies, magic, psychosomatic cures, satanic, and then providence. What is providence? Providence is prearranged events. They are, um, they are moved by divine power, 
but they can be naturally explained, but within a spiritual context. Um, All of us can say that there's probably been a time in our life when we have beheld or experienced providence at work, where we were at the right place at the right time. Um, We heard many of these stories with 9-11, of how someone was supposed to uh, get to the airport that morning and make a flight, and because of traffic or because they forgot something at home, they didn't make that flight, and they're alive today because of it. That would be what we would call providence. Uh, The fog at Normandy, D-Day, when the fog set in, that's a natural occurrence. Fog normally happens, but at just the right time so that they could approach the beach and take that, take that land. That would be an example of providence. And so providence is certainly from the Lord, but it still has a natural explanation to it from, from nature, from science, but clearly with a spiritual context. And then finally is the category of miracle. Um, and before, yeah, and so I'll come back and mention a, a, another point on providence here in a moment. So miracle. A miracle is a divine act, clearly supernatural. It breaks the laws of nature. It never fails. It's an immediate thing. It lasts, and it gives glory to God. An example of a miracle would be causing the blind to see, causing an elderly woman's womb to have a baby in it, life, Um, causing a virgin to have a baby in it, life. Um, eight years ago when God led us out here to this location that we're in now in some sense we would like to say oh that's miraculous but really it was providence we were beneficiaries of the providence of God what would have been miraculous is if there was no building here and within a matter of three days because we planted a seed in the ground up popped this building out of the ground well that would be a miracle that would clearly be a miracle or if we didn't have $1.5 million in, or $1 million in insurance money settlement from our fire, and all of a sudden we woke up one day and there in our suitcase or in our trunk of our car was a million dollars in cash. Okay, so, so there's a difference between God working through the affairs of time and, and history, and, and clearly we can say, no, what God did for us was providential, but it wasn't miraculous. And so the reason that I park here for a few moments and we try to really define what a miracle is is because this is where the debate happens. People are talking past each other. Skeptics are talking about one definition of a miracle. Christians are talking about another definition of a miracle. And many times, as I've heard the debates, they're not even talking about a miracle. They're talking about anomalies, magic, psychosomatic cures, satanic, providential, and they're not even talking about the realm of miracles. in his book, The Language of God, says this. He says, It is crucial that a healthy skepticism be applied when interpreting potentially miraculous events, lest the integrity and rationality of their religious perspective be brought into question. What's he saying? He's saying we have to be very stingy with our use of the word miracle, because if not, then that word gets cheapened, it gets thrown around, and we don't really know what we're talking about when we say the word miracle. The only thing that will kill the possibility of miracles more quickly than a committed materialism is the claiming of miracle status for everyday events for which natural explanations are readily at hand. And so this is important because, again, right place at the right time, providence, that's not a miracle, see? And so this is important. And so I hope that as we've just touched the surface of this, that that we'll dig deep and make sure that when we're using that word, we're using it in its proper Context. So what is a miracle, and why did God choose to use miracles to reveal himself and to confirm truth? Um, let me ask you this question. How many miracles are in the Bible? How many miracles are in the Bible? If you read it up and you read all the scriptures that mention miracles, there's about 300 occurrences of miracles throughout the Bible. Now, the Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years from Moses through Jesus and the apostles. That's about a 1,500-year span of human history. Sometimes when skeptics talk about the Bible, they pretend like the Bible is just full of incredible stuff that's too, too hard to be believed, right? 
Oh, it's just all full of fairy tales and magic. And no one, and of, and of course, people in the first century were very stupid scientifically. So they believed a lot of things were miracle when they really weren't. They were just very superstitious people. We're going to answer both of those things here in a moment. But to start off with, to assume that the Bible is just full of miracles is to not read the Bible accurately and honestly. Because actually, there's three periods in human history where miracles are clumped. In fact, if you take 1,500 years and you divide 300 miracles over 1,500 years, that's one miracle every five years. That's not a lot. But what you find out is that miracles are clumped together throughout God's Word, specifically around Moses and the prophets, around Elijah and Elisha. So Moses, Elijah, and Elisha, specifically the prophets, and then Jesus and the apostles. So that's where they're clumped. Why? Why were the miracles clumped around those three groups of people? Moses, Elijah, and Elisha, and Jesus and the apostles. It's because God was using miracles to confirm the message that he was giving to mankind. God was using signs to confirm the sermon. Most biblical miracles confirm, as I mentioned, Moses, Elijah, and Elisha, and Jesus and the apostles. And so as revelation of God was being given, he was giving miracles to point people to listen to that message and that messenger. Think about it. As God was further revealing himself, and you see this in Hebrews chapter number 1, that God was, was throughout human history partaking in progressive re revelation he started with Moses and the prophets and the fathers, and then in those last days has spoken unto us by the Son. And as God did that, he used miracles to confirm the revelation. So outrageous revelation would need outrageous confirmation. I mean, think about it. Jesus is coming in the first century in the Gospels, and he's telling the people that the law cannot save them. What do you mean, Jesus? We've, we've been 1,400 years with the Sinai law. You mean the law can't justify us before God? And what did Jesus do to confirm that outrageous message? He raised the dead. He made the lame to walk. He caused the blind to see. He fed people. When there was, no, when there was barely any food there, he fed 5,000... Jesus confirmed his message with miracle. Then his apostles did the same, just to make sure that the people got it. Specifically to the Jews, these miracles were given. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 through 4 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness with both signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles, and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to... To his own will. So God is saying that through these signs and these wonders, he was affirming the revelation of who he was and what he was doing. This is why miracles are so important, because miracles confirm the sermon. They confirm the messenger. Now, some people believe that miracles are impossible. Some people believe that pff, Noah in a boat... Worldwide flood, come on, that's, that's unbelievable. Jonah and a big fish, come on, that's unbelievable. A man rising from the dead, Jesus rising from the grave, come on, that's unbelievable. Some people say that miracles are impossible. What's crazy is when you look at the story of Noah, almost every ancient culture in the world has some kind of flood legend. Whether they get all the details right or not, every one of them has a flood legend in it. Jonah, the resurrection. When you think about the greatest miracle in the Bible, what's the greatest miracle in the Bible? There's some debate over this, but when you think about it logically, only one answer makes sense. What's the greatest miracle in the Bible? Well, think about it. In the beginning, God. If the first verse in the Bible is true then every other verse is believable. If God literally could speak this universe into existence, then God, who created the universe, can step in and suspend or violate the natural laws of his, of his universe at any time that he wants. 
And so if speaking this universe into existence was something that God can do, then it stands to reason that God can do whatever he so desires within that universe that he's created that is not logically impossible. Can God make a square circle? Probably not, right? Because there's, there's, there's a facts that make a square a square and a circle a circle. Can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? That's one of the big ones that gets thrown out in the universities. Can God make a rock so big? Well, the response, when someone asks you the question, all right, I'm going to teach you something here. Write this down. When someone asks you, can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? Your response needs to be a question. And it's this, how big does the rock have to be? And they'll say, big. And what do you do? How big? Big, big. How big is big, big? Infinitely big. And boom, you just caught them. Because what they just did is they just did what? The category mistake. Infinitely big doesn't make sense because a rock is something that's not infinite. And so obviously a rock is a finite thing and God by definition is infinite. And so therefore any finite thing that God makes, he can move. And so therefore that argument doesn't stand, it doesn't hold. And so since the first verse in the Bible is true, and we actually have scientific evidence, we just talked about it the last three weeks, cosmological, teleological, moral. If the first verse in the Bible is true, Genesis 1-1, then you can believe every other miracle in the Bible. It makes logical sense. Even though it's sometimes, okay, how could a man live in the belly of a fish for three days? Well, did he live? Or did he die? Or was he almost dead in the belly of that fish? I don't know. He probably wasn't having uh, ideal optimum uh, uh, levels of oxygen. In fact, Jesus references Jonah and Noah. Do you know why I believe that Noah is a true story and Jonah is a true story? Because a man who rose from the dead 2,000 years ago affirmed it. And so I can believe every story in the Bible because I see a God who spoke this universe into existence. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 12, verses 38 through 31, Then certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Wait a second. They've already seen a lot of signs at this point. They're asking for another miracle, another proof. They were wanting Jesus to be their little magician. So, Master, we would see a sign. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. An evil and adulterous generation is always seeking for more proof, always moving the bar of evidence and the bar of conviction further along. And that's what people are doing all the time today with the evidence for God. He says, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. Hmm. Interesting. Jonah was in the belly of that fish for how many days and nights? How many days was Jesus in the heart of the earth? In the grave? For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Because you know what the men of Nineveh believed? They believed the sign. They saw this man by a fish on the beach, and evidently he was close to death. Maybe he was dead. Maybe God, we don't have those details. But clearly this was a sign, and they listened to the prophet Jonah. And, of course, Nineveh repented. We know the story. And Jesus says, one that is greater than Jonah is here. Wow. Think about that. One greater than Jonah. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, a greater than Jonah is here. What was Jesus doing here in this story? He was, he was comparing his death, burial, and resurrection with that of Jonah. Now, of course, Jesus is so different than Jonah. Jonah didn't want to go to the people. Jesus wanted to come to the people. Jonah, Jonah was looking over the city of Nineveh waiting for vengeance. Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem and he was weeping. Oh, yeah, greater. There's no comparison when it comes to that. But Jesus was comparing the event of what Jonah went through and the sign that, that was to the people of Nineveh. And what G Jesus was saying is, Jonah's not a fairy tale. It's true. He thought it was literal. Second, he was pointing out that the great miracle that that generation was going to receive would be that of his own resurrection from the dead. But most of them would not believe it. A wicked and adulterous generation continues to ask for more evidence 
when the evidence that they have adequately satisfies the burden of proof. Here's the funny thing with miracles, though. Isn't it interesting that miracles don't seem to convince the human heart as you read throughout Scripture? We know that for many of these people who clearly had evidence of the resurrection and evidence of Jesus being from God, even Nicodemus said, Master, we know you're from God, for no man can do these things except God be with him. They knew it. They were just afraid of losing their political power with Rome. That's what it was about. Isn't it interesting as you study the Old Testament and the miracles that God did through Moses? If there's anybody that should have trusted God the most, it should have been the nation of Israel, right? They saw the sea split in half. I love the far side cartoon I saw about that this week. You know, there's always somebody slowing up the group of guys fishing, <laughs> fishing in the side of the wall. That's too funny. Anyway, um, they, they had happy meals from heaven outside of their door, their tent every morning. God provided water from a rock. Forget Aquafina, you got the best thing right there. A pillar of fire led them by night and a pillar of cloud by day. God did miracle after miracle. I mean, in their exodus from Egypt, all those miracles, all those signs throughout the wilderness. And yet when they got to the promised land, they wouldn't believe. And even 40 years later, the next generation was complaining. People are so fickle. One day, God, you're the greatest. You showed up, God. And the next day, I wonder if there is a God. What that tells me is that the evidence isn't the thing that we think it is. See, it, belief, ha, faith has to be mixed with the evidence. It's faith. We can see clear and evident ways that God works in our lives one day, but the next day we're wondering if there even is, is a God because of some new circumstance that's arisen. Oh, we're so often like the children of Israel. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, if we admit God, we must admit miracles. But, but if we admit God, must we admit miracles? Indeed. Indeed. You have no security against it. That is the bargain. When we say we believe in God, we're saying that God can do anything logically possible in this universe. God is capable of doing that. If God exists, then miracles are possible. If someone denies this, then you need to invite them to look at the cosmological, teleological arguments with some sincerity. Because we live inside the greatest miracle of all, life in this universe. Many of you receive a, a, a birthday postcard from me, and, and if I've missed your birthday, let us know so we can get you one. But, but in, in many of those postcards, I write, I hope you enjoy celebrating this miracle we call life today. You know why? Because every day is a gift. It's a miracle that we exist at all in the first place. That's why Paul says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What's Paul saying? He's saying, Paul, Paul's saying, look at creation. There is no excuse. Everyone knows there is a God intuitively. Oh, they try to suppress that truth, but it's always there. And Paul's saying here, he's just saying basic creation reveals that there's a God. You don't need a miracle like the resurrection to know that there's a God. You've got creation to know that there's a God. But the reason you've got a resurrection is because that's proof that God's not a, deist, uh, a, a deistic God. You see, it's not just, we can't just believe in theism. It has to go somewhere because what you see in the Gospels is you see miracles continuing. And what that tells us is God didn't just start the universe with a miracle and then leave it to figure itself out on its own. He then had a resurrection and a new creation in that resurrection, which says God is still at work in human history. He continues to work. And that should be a great solace for us because we know that we're not left alone in this, but that God is with us. That's what the incarnation tells us. And so... Miracles, are they possible? Of course. We live inside the greatest miracle, the speaking of the universe into existence out of nothing. Now, before we go today, we have to look at this guy, David Hume, because David Hume lived in the late 1700s, and he was a famous philosopher that many people still quote to this day and use his work. And David Hume tried to prove that miracles are not credible. And so there's some notes there, um, I believe, in your... Uh, um, 
in your handout. Did David Hume prove that miracles are not credible? Well, what is Hume's objection? And here's his formal argument. He says, natural law is by definition a description of a regular occurrence. So natural scientific laws describe what regularly happens. That's what he's saying. So the law of gravity, the second law of thermodynamics, the strong and weak nuclear forces, those are laws, and they describe what regularly occurs. That's point one, premise one. Premise two, a miracle is by definition a rare occurrence. That's premise two, and we agree with that. A miracle, if it's by definition a miracle, is something that doesn't normally happen, right? Which implies that we do know what normally happens, so therefore we can identify when something happens that's not normal. This is all logic, but it, but it makes sense. And so we agree with these first two premises. Premise three, the evidence for the regular is always greater than that for the rare. The evidence for the regular is always greater than that for the rare. Number four, a wise, that's premise three. Number four, a wise man always bases his belief on the greater evidence. That's premise four. Therefore, a wise man should never believe in miracles. That's the conclusion. Now, as you've been sitting through this series, which premise is the problem? Which premise? We already know that the first two premises, those make sense. We're not saying that those don't make sense. It's premise three. It's point three that's the problem. What do we mean? Premise three is false in his argument. Because the evidence for regular events is not always greater than that for the rare. How can we prove that? Well, here's examples from Hume's own worldview. The Big Bang Theory, or whatever you call it, I call it the creation event, God speaking the universe literally into existence out of nothing, is by definition a singular event. But it can be confirmed with scientific law. The cosmological argument disproves premise three. Because the very fact that we're here took some kind of non-regular event to occur. The origin of life on earth does not occur regularly. So again, if you go back all the way, and, and again, this is irrespective of time. I believe that God, if he could speak the universe into existence, can do it in six days, 6,000 years, six seconds if he wanted. But God can do anything that he can do that's logically possible in the known universe. But the very fact of life beginning, again, is a singular event. Whether that started with an amoeba, as some people like to say, or that started with a human being fully created and mature, the point is, is that first life is a non-regular event by Hume's definition. So basically, Hume, on his logic, on the premise three, should doubt whether the universe even exists and whether he's even really here, because those are non-regular occurrences. Macroevolution cannot be repeated. The entire history of the earth cannot be repeated. So premise three of Hume's argument is faulty. Hume's argument, even if every premise was true, doesn't rule out the possibility of miracles. That's what's crazy about this. Is as you really study David Hume and these other philosophers, they're not arguing against the possibility. What they're really arguing against is the believability. Therefore, a wise man should never believe in miracles. Conclusion. So Hume's argument, we're not even talking about the possibility of miracles. He's saying you just shouldn't believe them. Well, that doesn't answer the question. Are they possible? So his argument is actually just addressing whether you should believe it or not believe it. He never deals with the actual question of are they possible? Listen, if this universe exploded into existence out of nothing, and then that means there is a being beyond the world that caused all this, and that's where the evidence points, then this being can do whatever he wants inside this universe that is logically possible. If God can make water, he can walk on water. If God can create life, then he can raise the dead. He can bring to life again. But as I've mentioned to you throughout this series, the issue is not the evidence. 
The issue is the bias before you even look at the evidence. Proof? Okay. Richard Lewontin in 1997 in the New York Times said this, It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world. What's he saying there? He's saying, listen, this world that we live in is phenomenal. And we have materialistic explanations for it. But on the contrary, we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes. That's, that's Latin. What that means is, he's saying we're forced by our bias to materialism before we ever look at the evidence. And notice what he says. Do you see it? For we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Why? Because that's not convenient to his worldview. That doesn't line up. I've given you several quotes throughout this series of, in their own words, tell me which person is more open-minded. The person who even before they look at the evidence says, I'm already not going to allow a divine foot in the door, or someone who says, you know what, there could be a God. Show me the evidence, and as I piece together the evidence, I'll, I'll come to my conclusion, my reasonable conclusion. You see, the whole debate today is not, it is not, mark this down, it's not over science. In the 20 or so books that I've read on this issue, it's not over science, it's over philosophy. And the difference is, philosophy is what you believe, how you believe about the science that you're practicing. And every scientist, when he puts on that white lab coat, we assume that that scientist with the letters after his name, with all those degrees, who, who, who has the cool-looking glasses even, and, and we, we assume that he has no bias. No, we all have bias. The question is, how do we get past our bias to see the evidence? And so the whole debate today is not over science. It's over philosophy. And so when it comes to the miraculous, materialist scientists have ruled the possibility of miracle out before they even look at the evidence. And so your worldview bias can color your conclusions. When you look at history and truth, when you look at these stories of incredible things that happened in the first century, and you look at that recording, you have a bias when you're reading that. For theism, they say miracles are possible. So if there was an elderly couple and all of a sudden an angel appeared to Zechariah in the temple and he said that your wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a baby, and we're like, okay, that's possible. But here's what's funny. That story that I just referenced in Luke chapter number one, here's what the modern philosophers and scientists like to say, and I'm trying to be kind, but they have chronological snobbery. And what I mean by that is, is they assume that people in the first century were just credulous, gullible people who believed any miraculous tale. And so, yeah, poor little first century people, they just believed. Read Luke chapter number one. Read Zechariah, who was a priest, who prayed to God, who knew the, who knew the word of God. Did Zechariah believe? He found it incredible. Why? Because it was truly a miracle. He's like, How's this possible? And of course, he had to be quiet for nine months because he didn't believe. So what that shows is, and that, that's just one story. Joseph, Joseph was going to put away his wife, Mary. Why? Because Joseph understood how babies appear. And it took an angel stepping in saying, no, Joseph, this is, I know it sounds too hard to believe, but Joseph... The, the, person, the, the baby in your soon-to-be wife's womb is the son of the Most High. He is the son of God. You shall call his name Jesus. And so Joseph, again, Joseph wasn't this poor little first century carpenter in the uh, village of Nazareth who just believed in any miraculous story. No, when you read the events of the Gospels, it sounds like actual history, like people actually struggling to believe a miraculous event. And they had evidence then to convince them that that was the truth. And so you have two ways of looking at these things, and we all come to it with our bias. And so does truth exist? Yes. In fact, if you say there is no truth, that in itself is a truth claim. So yes, truth exists. Number two, does God exist? We've given you three arguments, cosmological, teleological, and moral. There's 17 to 20 others, but those are the three main ones. Does God exist? 
I can say based on the evidence, the circumstantial evidence, putting it together, yes. Are miracles possible? Yes. And so with that question, with these questions answered, the question now is, is to see if there's any other miracles that have occurred since the beginning of the universe. And how do we do that? We look back at history and a historical record such as the New Testament to see if they are accurate, reliable records of what happened about 2,000 years ago. And if they are accurate and reliable, and there was a man named Jesus who did these miraculous things. In fact, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, would say, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves know. Peter's basically saying, you saw the miracles, you know what he did, and I'm here to declare to you that it's through faith and life in his name that you can have the remission of sins. And what happened on that day? Evidently, the evidence of Jesus' life and his signs and his miracles was enough, catch this, that 3,000 people trusted Christ that day. That record of history tells me that I better read that, I better dive in, I better examine. You see? And so that's what we're going to do over the next several weeks is look at the New Testament, look at why we believe the Bible, why it's an accurate record for us. As Peter says, we have not followed cunningly devised fables, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I love this verse. We read John 20, verses 30 and 31, but the verse before it, verse 29, look there with me for a moment as we wrap up today. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas. Y'all know Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas, the one who didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. Unless I see God, I won't believe. And so what does Jesus do? He appears to Thomas. And he says, Thomas, because you've seen me, you believed. But notice the last few verse, words of this verse. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Who was Jesus talking about in that final part of that verse? He was talking about you and me. We have the evidence. And Jesus says we're blessed because we believe. Is seeing believing or is it when you really believe? You see. I think it's the latter. When you really believe, you see. Why? Because there were people in Jesus' day who saw and didn't believe. So that tells me we have enough evidence to believe. Let's pray.